In Warsaw, President Biden delivered a speech ahead of the first anniversary of Russia's war on Ukraine. When Russia invaded, it wasn't just Ukraine being tested. The whole world faced a test for the ages. It's Tuesday, February 21st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in Fort Lisa Mullins. A recent study in the UK where companies offered workers a four-day work week yielded some surprising results. The organization needs to engage with the people to find out what they want. And as much as you might think it's an amazing offer, they may not think that. Also, Jake Biddle discusses his book, The Great Displacement, focusing on how climate change has forced some people to relocate against their will. It's 401 First This News. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Hello, Poland! President Biden was back today at the historic Royal Castle in Poland nearly a year since he last visited when Russian President Vladimir Putin had launched the invasion of Poland's neighbor Ukraine. As the war heads into a second year, Biden visited Poland to boost morale, as he did a day earlier in the war-torn Ukrainian capital. One year ago, the world was bracing for the fall of Kyiv. Well, I just come from a visit to Kyiv, and I can report Kyiv stands strong. Biden did not mention Russia's announcement that it would suspend its participation in the last remaining nuclear arms treaty with the United States. After Russian President Vladimir Putin's announcement last night, the foreign ministry said the Kremlin would continue to comply with the START treaty's limits, how many warheads it can deploy. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says Washington will watch what Moscow actually does. Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adeyemo says the U.S. is preparing to take action against countries and companies that help Russia evade sanctions. Here's NPR's Jackie Northam. Secretary Adeyemo says sanctions the U.S. and its allies have placed on the Kremlin over the past year have hurt Russia's economy. And he warned that any attempts to help Russia evade those sanctions will be met with action. Adeyemo pointed specifically to China, saying it could face sanctions for providing support to Russia. China has to make choices about what they are willing to do and whether they want to be part of the global system that represents 50 percent of the global economy or whether they want to strengthen their ties with Russia. Adeyemo says the U.S. and its allies are also going after Russia's supply chains, including Iranian companies manufacturing drones. Jackie Northam, NPR News. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency says it's taking charge of the cleanup of toxic chemicals it spilled in that violent train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, earlier this month. NPR's David Shaper reports that the head of the EPA vows to make the rail company Norfolk Southern foot the bill. EPA Administrator Michael Regan says he is ordering Norfolk Southern to fully remediate all contaminated air, water and soil near the derailment site on both sides of the Ohio-Pennsylvania border. And he says if Norfolk Southern fails to comply, EPA will take over the cleanup and force the railroad to pay triple the costs. In no way, shape or form will Norfolk Southern get off the hook for the mess that they created. Norfolk Southern says that so far it has already removed 15,000 pounds of contaminated soil and 1.5 million gallons of tainted water. David Shaper, NPR News. The Dow Jones Industrial Average has closed down nearly 700 points or more than 2%. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The racial makeup of COVID deaths appears to be shifting. In the first two years of the pandemic, deaths were two to three times higher in Hispanic, Black, and Asian populations than among white populations. Professor Jonathan Levy of the Boston University School of Public Health says those mortality patterns began to change in 2022 when public health protections eased. There's been some survey evidence, for example, that uh, both Black and Hispanic populations tended to wear masks more uh, in the spring of 2022 than white populations. And so that could contribute to some of the, the shift. Levy's analysis was conducted for the Boston Globe. He says the disparities in the race and ethnicity mortality rate has more to do with societal norms than biology. Rhode Island Congressman David Cicilline plans to step down later this year. The 61-year-old Democrat has been named president and CEO of the Rhode Island Foundation, effective June 1st. The foundation is Rhode Island's largest funder of nonprofits. Cicilline has represented Rhode Island in the U.S. House since 2011. Before that, he was mayor of Providence from 2003 to 2011. The mayor of New Bedford wants to abolish a 10% pay penalty in the city. The ordinance reduces the pay of managers in city government who do not live in New Bedford by 10%. The ordinance was passed last November after the city council overrode a veto by Mayor John Mitchell. Mitchell argues the pay penalty makes it more difficult to attract talented candidates to the city. A Boston man is being held without bail in connection with the stabbing death of another man in Dorchester last summer. At his arraignment today, prosecutors say Dwight Watson killed Irvin Gerard at a social club in July and then fled the state. Watson was arrested in Ohio last month and returned to Massachusetts over the weekend. He is due back in court next month. The slopes may be busy for school vacation week, but if you are not much of a skier, then you might want to try tubing instead. Dylan Mahan is the marketing director at Ski Butternut in western Massachusetts, and he says conditions are good despite some recent warm weather. Even when snow's not in people's yards, we still have a very deep snow base for the tubing center built up, and it does pretty well through the uh, warm weather and, and holds up pretty well. Mahan suggests making a reservation before visiting because tickets are limited and sell out fast. It's 39 degrees in Boston, some rain around mainly before midnight, overnight lows in the low 30s. Tomorrow, increasing clouds and Wednesday's highs in the low 40s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. There were dueling speeches today as Russia's war in Ukraine hits the one-year mark. President Vladimir Putin gave a State of the Union-type address earlier today in Moscow, where he talked about the war. And then in Warsaw, President Biden said the past year should leave no doubt about the resolve of the West to counter Russian aggression. Our support for Ukraine will not waver. NATO will not be divided, and we will not tire. 
NPR's Asma Khalid was there in Warsaw, and NPR's Charles Maines was in Moscow. And they join us now to compare notes on both leaders' speeches. Hey to both of you. Hi there. Hi there. All right, let's start with you, Asma. Biden spoke today, I understand, from the same place in Warsaw where he gave an address last March near the start of the war. What did he Mm -hmm. have to say today? Well, the president was here in Poland, as you mentioned, uh, to mark the anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, You know, I I will say it was a very different atmosphere from the speech that he delivered in March here in Poland, March of last year. Uh, At that point, you know, there were concerns that Kyiv would fall into Russian hands. There were concerns about keeping NATO united. And so it was a much more somber speech he delivered at the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You know, this year, the vibe felt like a highly produced rock concert. Uh, it was a real celebratory campaign speech. Uh, there were fog machines and spotlights, and Biden walked out on stage to the song Freedom, and there were thousands of people in the crowd waving Ukrainian, Polish, and American flags. Uh, one main message the president was delivering here today was just a reminder of where the world was a year ago, where this conflict stood, and where it is today. Uh, and he mentioned that Ukraine you know, remains a free country despite the fact that Russian tanks have rolled in. One year ago. The world was bracing for the fall of Kyiv. Well, I just come from a visit to Kyiv, and I can report Kyiv stands strong. Kyiv stands proud. It stands tall. And most important, it stands free. Biden was speaking there about the covert trip that he took to Kyiv on Monday. You know, Biden pointed out that Ukraine has remained independent far longer than some had expected, and he insisted that Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. Hmm. Well, Charles, Putin's speech was also supposed to focus heavily on Ukraine. What did he have to say? Well, there was no fog machine. Uh, Putin (laughs) gave a a longer speech, uh, nearly two hours, uh, that largely recycled arguments blaming the West for the war in Ukraine. Uh, Yet Putin really saved the headline for last. Uh, He said Russia was suspending participation in the New START treaty. Uh, That's the sole remaining nuclear arms agreement with the U.S. Mm -hmm. Now, Putin stressed Russia was not formally leaving the nuclear pact. In fact, his foreign ministry even said later that the suspension decision was reversible. Uh, But clearly Putin linked the decision to Western military support for Ukraine. Let's listen. США и НАТО прямо говорят о том, что их цель So here Putin says that the U.S. and NATO profess they want to see Russia's strategic defeat in Ukraine, uh, and yet they also want to come inspect uh, Russian military bases under the New START Treaty, and Putin argued that was, quote, stupid. Now, the New START Treaty was already in trouble. Uh, The two sides had been bickering over inspections rules ever since, really, they were suspended during the COVID pandemic. But Russia is making it clear it's willing to use the treaty's survival, uh, it currently expires in 2026, uh, to pressure the U.S to back off in Ukraine. Okay, well, Charles, beyond the nuclear issue, did Putin give any more of a sense about the war in Ukraine and where it's actually headed? Well, Russia carried out attacks on Ukraine during the speech. Six people were killed amid shelling in Kherson, at least according to Ukrainian officials, uh, which may be an answer in and of itself. Uh, And indeed, Putin did not say anything about peace or seeking an off-ramp to end the war. Mm. Uh, But there are other things he did not say. You know, Putin did not declare a formal war. Uh, He did not announce a new mobilization draft or say he was sealing the borders. In other words, he didn't say a lot of things that a lot of Russians were very nervous about in the run-up to the address. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, much of... uh, 
uh, Putin's speech focused on domestic issues, a lot on helping military families, but also tax cuts, uh, education, investing in Russia's future, you know, almost as if Putin was trying to appeal to Russians uh, with promises of how normal life could be uh, despite these abnormal times. Well, I'm curious, Asma, did President Biden respond at all to Putin's speech? I would say really in only a a sort of small way. You know, the White House insisted that Biden's speech was not set up to be this head-to-head contrast with Putin. But there was a point when Biden indicated a response to the Russian president in his remarks today. There was this moment when he spoke directly to Russians, saying that the West was not seeking to control Russia or to attack Russia, uh, which Putin had suggested in his speech. And what did Biden say about the path ahead? You know, I will say he did not really articulate a clear prescriptive message for the future in terms of this conflict uh, between Russia and Ukraine. He suggested allies and Americans need to be clear-eyed about what lies ahead, and he acknowledged that the defense of freedom is not the work of a day or a year. Uh, In his words, it's always difficult. He warned that there could be hard and bitter days ahead, and he insisted that allies will continue to support Ukraine. Um, You know, I will say Ukrainians have been asking for F-16s. The White House has not agreed to send fighter jets, and Biden today did not offer any specifics on what kind of additional support the U.S. might be prepared to give. He did say that additional sanctions uh, are in the works, but again, he didn't provide specifics on that. You know, this speech, I I will say, was not really about articulating the next steps for Ukraine. It was really about energizing allies and energizing Americans to continue supporting Ukraine no matter how long this war takes. And Charles, was was there any reaction to Biden's speech in Moscow? Well, Biden's speech, uh, maybe not surprisingly, uh, was not shown on Russian television. So it's not, it's not clear how many Russians actually will hear what he had to say. Uh, at the same time, there was extensive coverage of Biden's trip to Kiev. And, and that's because while, yes, you know, it's, it's seen as provocative, uh, it's also seen as proof uh, you know, of what Putin and the propaganda machine here have been arguing all along, uh, that Ukraine is a puppet of the U.S. and really just a means for the United States uh, to pursue its supposedly wider goal, which is re- weakening Russia. That is NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow and Asma Khalid in Warsaw. Thank you to both of you. Thank you. Good to speak with you. Colorado is taking a hard look at its so-called red flag law, which allows police to take guns away from people deemed too dangerous to have them. This after the November Club Q shooting, which killed five people and wounded 17 others. The suspected shooter had been arrested a year earlier for threatening behavior, but the red flag law was not applied. Colorado Public Radio's Andrew Kenny looked at the hundreds of times the law has been used there and why it's not used more often. The nation's first red flag law passed more than 20 years ago in Connecticut after a mass shooting at a government office. Since then, 18 other states and Washington, D.C. have passed similar laws, often in response to their own tragedies. Colorado's came in 2019 after a man with a troubled history killed a sheriff's deputy in Douglas County. Then Sheriff Tony Spurlock testified for the law. People tend to look away. Don't do that anymore, Colorado. Focus on those people. Those people need our help. And we have the opportunity to save lives. The law allows police to take guns from people deemed too dangerous to have them and prevent them from buying more if a judge agrees. But it doesn't always work how advocates hoped. This woman in the Denver area tried to use it when her ex allegedly threatened himself and her, where not identifying her at her request to protect her safety. So I went to Lakewood Police, and then they told me that they could do a wellness check 
An officer didn't think there was enough evidence to press for a red flag order, even though the woman had a video of the man pointing a rifle at himself. And I said, well, if you do a wellness check, he's going to know that I called the police. And then she was like, well, at this point, we've done all that we can do. Best of luck. But Lakewood police told her she could still go to a judge herself and ask for red flag protection. As a conservative, she had doubts about using the law, but she saw no other choice. And at that point, I was like, I'll just go to the courthouse. But there's a big difference. Citizen requests for red flag protection only succeed about 20% of the time, compared to more than 80% for police requests. The woman says it was a struggle to even file the paperwork in the right place. I did get emotional in that, and I said, um, you know, are you going to be at the funeral, like, apologizing to my kids? Because at this point, I've been dealing with it for a week, and I'm trying to figure it out. She did figure it out and eventually got a one-year red flag order, but she wishes she'd had more help. So it was just very, very lonely. Lakewood police said while they didn't pursue this case, they have embraced the law. We found they filed at least nine red flag petitions, more than almost any other agency in Colorado, Commander John Alish. And the community decided after some tragedies that this was a necessary tool. That's one reason we take it very seriously. In contrast, most Colorado police departments have never used the law. Police agencies in El Paso County have filed just two requests, compared to about 90 from Denver, which has a similar population. After the Club Q shooting, El Paso County authorities said they'd had specific reasons not to use the law earlier, despite the suspect's previous threats. But they've also objected to the law itself on Second Amendment grounds. I really want to solve the problem of mental health, but I don't want to do it with an unconstitutional law. That's former El Paso County Sheriff Bill Elder back in 2019, when dozens of conservative counties declared themselves as Second Amendment sanctuaries, protesting limiting gun rights for people who may not have been charged with a crime. And frankly, there are a huge number of police chiefs, mayors, city councils that are in this same exact boat. A woman in one rural county was told the sheriff there avoids using the law because... Because it's taking away the freedom, their freedom to their second amendment. She too asked for anonymity because she fears the man in the case who was allowed to keep his guns. And it's just, you know, prioritizing one over the other. Like the freedom to feeling safe or knowing your community safe or the freedom to your gun. Colorado lawmakers are debating potential changes to the law, like allowing district attorneys to start the red flag process, too. That would give people one more place to ask for help. For NPR News, I'm Andrew Kenny. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 418 and coming up in about 15 minutes, the White House says Tesla will open thousands of its proprietary chargers to be used by any EV driver. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software. Powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at wbur.org cars. 
In business news, Amazon's making a change that affects workers in Massachusetts, including at a new office in the seaport. The company is requiring a return to the office. The CEO says as of May, nearly all Amazon employees must work in the office at least three days per week. On Wall Street, the Dow closed down 697 points, just over 2 percent, finishing at 33,129. The Nasdaq's down 294 points, 2.5 percent, closing at 11,492. The S&P 500 is down 81 points, 2 percent, closing at 3,997. It's 39 degrees in Boston, a chance of some rain mainly before midnight. Then tomorrow, sunshine to start, increasing clouds after that, and highs in the mid-40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at EasyCater.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. We tell stories all the time about climate fuel disasters that uproot people's lives, fires in California, hurricanes in Louisiana. Well, Jake Biddle's new book is about what happens in the years after those events. It's called The Great Displacement, Climate Change and the Next American Migration. It goes from drought-hit farms in Arizona to flooded coastlines in Virginia. Jake Biddle, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me. So displacement is an interesting word choice in the title, and you open the book by explaining why you picked that word, even though climate migration is becoming a more common term. Why do you consider this a displacement? Right. So migration, the word to me tends to imply an intentional movement from point A to point B. You know, somebody no longer wants to live where they do. So they get up and they choose to move somewhere else that's better. And what I found was that in the United States and in other places, what's happening as climate disasters get worse is something much more chaotic. People tend to want to stay where they are for as long as they possibly can. In many cases, they find it devastating to leave behind the place that they are from. But more than that, uh, they also don't really move very far. They don't really know where they're going. And they often don't necessarily stay to the place that they move uh, for a long period of time. So I think that because climate change exerts so much economic pressure and because the movements that follow these disasters are so chaotic, you can't really use the word migration as we tend to think of it. And so I was trying to find a word that sort of captured that chaos or that sort of frothy nature of of the movement after these disasters. And I felt that displacement was a more accurate term. I think a lot of people imagine this to be something that happens elsewhere. You know, climate change is displacing people in Bangladesh or in the islands of the South Pacific. Did you have a hard time finding examples of people experiencing climate displacement in the U.S.? No, I didn't have a hard time at all. And indeed, the reason why I wanted to do the book was because I felt that there were a lot of people out there who had moved in the aftermath of disasters, but whose stories we just didn't tend to tell. All it took was to sort of go to the places where there had been disasters a few years earlier and start talking to people. And it was very easy to find dozens and hundreds of people who had ended up slowly migrating away or just not being able to make it back after a storm or a big fire. As I said, the book sort of hopscotches all over the country. 
What was your starting point? Where did you begin? I started in Houston. I had worked on a story about a federal government flood buyout program in the city of Houston, where basically the government would buy out homes that had seen repeated flooding, knock them down and give people money to move somewhere else. And there was a sort of range of outcomes here that I thought was really fascinating. Some people thought this program was exceptionally effective, that it helped people get out of places that were you know, prone to flooding again and again. Some people thought it was really not great. You know, the government would give people a stipend to move and they would basically not check on what happened to them. And a lot of them ended up moving into places that were just as vulnerable as the neighborhoods that they left behind. So this was a nationwide program. I wrote about it in Houston, but it sort of opened up this world to me of all these people who had, you know, tens of thousands of people every year who had moved after disasters. And we really just didn't know what happened to them. Even though the patterns of displacement are chaotic and unpredictable, there are certain consistent themes. Like you say climate displacement exacerbates income inequality. And one place that's really apparent is Northern California. You write about the Tubbs fire, which roared through Santa Rosa. What happened after that? So California was already experiencing a housing crisis, as everyone knows. But the city lost you know, upwards of 4,000 housing units to the fire. And that took this already pretty severe housing crisis and just supercharged it to the point where wealthy people who had lost their homes were able to bid higher and higher and higher for rental apartments that were available. And in many cases, they actually took away rental apartments from people whose leases were expiring. So some people ended up doubling up with their parents. Some people moved as far away as Kentucky and only came back years later. But it was just kind of chaos. And the farther down you were on the income ladder, the, the less able you were to find housing in this sort of really severe post-disaster crunch. And a question that comes up a lot is who's left holding the bag? Like, is it up to the federal government? Is it up to the homeowners? You describe in Norfolk, Virginia, where rising seas are flooding neighborhoods, that it's like people are passing around a stick of dynamite hoping not to be the person holding it when it explodes. So when the reality of these situations whether it's flooding or drought or what have you, when that finally becomes undeniable, like who do we put the onus on? How is our country answering that question? Right. So right now we sort of have a, a partial and incomplete answer to that question, which is that the amount of money that gets doled out each year is nowhere near equivalent to the amount of damage, right? So the difference is usually made up by the homeowners and by the renters. The government and insurance companies don't distribute enough money to make up that difference. So homeowners end up bearing the cost of these excessively damaging disasters, whether that's through having to leave and exert themselves to find more affordable housing or having to dig into their savings to protect the, you know, the life of their mortgage and make sure their house is actually worth something. These are inevitably challenging, difficult situations with answers that are not easy. But were there scenarios that you thought that was handled really well? People wound up in a good place after that policy was implemented. Yes, there are a few of those. <laughs> There's not a ton. So during the Obama administration, the federal government handed down a bunch of money, uh, about a billion dollars, to sort of do a, a pilot program for different, what they called resilience strategies, different ways of adapting to climate change. And in, a, in an African-American neighborhood of Norfolk called Chesterfield Heights, which had seen you know really, really frequent uh, flooding from, from high tide events and from storms, the city was able to spend upwards of $100 million to create this park that would absorb tides, to create these really beautiful berms along the water that would sort of stop storm surge from happening, and also to fix this really outdated stormwater system that really wasn't handling uh, rain events very well. And it went from a neighborhood where 
property values were going to decline and nobody really wanted to move there because it was just, it was so vulnerable to flooding. And it went to a neighborhood that now has some of the best infrastructure in the city and certainly is going to be resilient in the coming decades uh, to the rising sea levels that are happening off the coast of Virginia. We're at the beginning of a trend that will only accelerate. So what does the future look like? I mean, how many Americans are likely to be forced to relocate because of climate change? Where are they likely to go? Can you paint a picture of what the U.S. might look like decades from now? Yeah, it's it's really, really difficult to know with any certainty what the U.S. will look like decades from now. But I think what we can say with certainty is that people will continue to lose their homes, you know, hundreds of thousands, probably on average each year. That's already, you know, a pretty good ballpark estimate of the number of people whose homes get damaged or destroyed by a climate disaster each year. So you could imagine a, a situation where from the coast or from the hottest parts of the country, the parts that are most prone to wildfire, people start to move towards cities that tend to be a little more temperate while not being so far away that they're unfamiliar, right? So some demographers predict that people might move from Miami, say, to Orlando or Atlanta, or people might move from Houston to Dallas, but it will be very messy. You know, it won't be a coherent march northward. It will be a lot of churning and uh, back and forth, and then eventually these trends might, might emerge over the decades. Jake Biddle is the author of The Great Displacement, Climate Change, and the Next American Migration. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 429. And coming up in about 15 minutes, longtime Democratic Congresswoman Barbara Lee says she will join the race for the U.S. Senate in California. You'll get that story. It's 39 degrees in Boston with a chance of some rain mainly before midnight tonight and overnight lows in the low 30s. Tomorrow, sunshine to start, then increasing clouds and highs in the mid 40s. Tomorrow night, some rain and snow, little or no accumulation. Thursday, rain, highs in the mid-30s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Pioneer Charter School of Science, providing students with a rigorous college prep academic curriculum with two campuses serving Greater Boston and the North Shore. Apply online at pioneercss.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, Andrea Campbell joins us for the first time since becoming the state's top lawyer. It's been a journey from Boston City Council to the Attorney General's office. We find out more about her priorities and how she'll bring her Boston experience to her work as the people's lawyer. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden delivered a message of freedom and democracy in Poland today, ahead of the first anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. During a speech in Warsaw, Biden offered his assessment of where the conflict stands today. One year into this war, Putin no longer doubts the strength of our coalition, but he still doubts our conviction. He doubts our staying power. He doubts our continued support for Ukraine. He doubts whether NATO can remain unified. 
But there should be no doubt. Our support for Ukraine will not waver. NATO will not be divided, and we will not tire. Earlier today, a defiant President Vladimir Putin took aim at the West for supporting Ukraine and announced that Russia would suspend participation in its nuclear arms control agreement with the U.S. Moscow later said it would continue to abide by caps on nuclear weapons. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the U.S. is still considering diplomatic options with Iran over its nuclear program. Lydia Emanuelito reports Blinken spoke today in Greece. Blinken met with Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis and with his Greek counterpart as part of a series of strategic dialogues between the U.S. and Greece. Blinken's visit to Athens followed a stop in neighboring Turkey, where the U.S. secretary visited areas hardest hit by the recent earthquakes. At a press conference in Athens, Blinken urged for calm and cooperation between Greece and Turkey. The neighbors, both NATO allies, have been at odds on several issues, including migration and territorial rights in the eastern Mediterranean. Those disputes have been put on the back burner following the devastating earthquakes in Turkey. For NPR News, I'm Lydia Menulidou in Athens, Greece. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. People from around the world are sending their well wishes to former President Jimmy Carter and his family. Last week, America's 39th president entered hospice care at his home in Georgia. Carter is widely praised for his work with the group Habitat for Humanity. Greater Boston Habitat president and CEO Jim Costaris says the Carter's involvement was transformational. He and Rosalind traveled the world for Habitat for Humanity. They work with thousands of volunteers. You know, they, they worked alongside, we estimate, uh, at least 100,000 volunteers in 14 different countries to build, renovate, and repair over 4,000 homes. He says it is hard to overstate Jimmy Carter's work to improve the lives of thousands of families. Members of a New Hampshire nonprofit who are traveling to Ukraine this week have made it safely to Poland. The four co-founders of Common Man for Ukraine landed in Warsaw today and were able to attend President Biden's speech. Tomorrow, the group is scheduled to pack up relief supplies for 14 Ukrainian orphanages. The items include food, sleeping bags, and clothing, and the packages are expected to be delivered in Ukraine Friday and Saturday. The Healy administration has named a new Massachusetts commissioner of the Department of Energy Resources. Elizabeth Mahoney is taking the job. She'll be responsible for helping ensure the adequacy and cost effectiveness of the state's energy supply, while also helping Massachusetts reach its clean energy goals. Mahoney most recently worked as an assistant attorney general and senior policy advisor for energy. She starts on Monday. Last month's median sale price for single-family homes in Massachusetts held steady at $520,000 compared to January of last year. The Massachusetts Association of Realtors says in that same time frame, condo prices rose by more than 10 percent to $497,000. David McCarthy is the association president. He says despite data showing more than 100,000 Massachusetts residents moved out of the state since the pandemic began, the housing market has remained strong. We still have significant demand for single family and condominiums in Massachusetts because we have such a great state to live in and because our our production of single family homes and condominiums is not meeting the market needs, which is what is keeping prices where they are. 
McCarthy says sales closings for single-family homes dropped by nearly a third compared to this time last year to just over 2,200. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. It's 39 degrees in Boston, a chance of some rain, mainly before midnight tonight, and lows dropping to the low 30s overnight. Some sunshine to start tomorrow, then increasing clouds and Wednesday's highs in the mid-40s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, now streaming Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, based on the rise and fall of British politician John Stonehouse, who faked his own death. Available at BritBox.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks DayQuil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at Vicks.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. So, are you hoping to reclaim a bit of time from the busy work week? Well, one of the world's largest studies of the four-day work week has some good news. The six-month study followed 61 companies in the UK, nearly 3,000 employees overall. And the results demonstrate that workers got more sleep, had less anxiety, and were less likely to quit. All of that and the company's revenues stayed steady, or in some cases even went up. The environmental consultancy Tyler Grange is one of the companies that took part in the study. And they have said that they are making the four-day work week permanent. Simon Ursel is the firm's managing director, and he joins us now. Hey there. Hi, how you doing? Pretty good. I want to hear more about this. Okay, so I guess my biggest question overall is, you know, you have said that some of your employees were anxious. They were already working at full capacity at five days a week before you entered the study. So how did you get them to fit all of that work into four days without increasing burnout? I mean, we were worried about that. And it was our very best people that were the most anxious. Mm. But what we did is enable them to work on it in their own way. I think that's, that's the key to this. And we declared war on admin, so we do as little administrative tasks as we possibly can. So mm -hmm. internal meetings, filling in forms to tell somebody else what you're doing. We made some significant time savings by doing that. Well, what if your clients need you on a Friday or whatever day you're taking off during the work week? How did your firm handle that issue? The businesses that did this across the UK, they all did different things. In our case, we shut the whole business down on Thursday night, so Friday we're not in. But what we have got is an emergency phone line. We've made the directors, the owners of the business, man the phone line on a Friday. Plus, if we do get phoned up and it's about a project one of the guys is working on, the commitment is they have to help us solve whatever it is that's been missed during the week. So that's a pretty serious incentive for people to actually make sure they're really on point with their work. And the thing that's really changed, and actually our clients, they've all reported that the level of service has gone up wow. because our comms has got much better. I do have to raise the issue of parity here, like how applicable this concept is, because most of the companies in this pilot study had 25 or fewer employees, and most of the participants were white and had undergraduate degrees. So like, given those limitations, how broadly do you think these results really could apply, especially in sectors that are already experiencing staffing shortages, where the idea of taking one day 
off every single week just isn't realistic. Yeah, no, I hear that, and, and you're absolutely right. And I, but I think the real question is, why five days? I, I mean, I haven't heard anybody give me a reason why we work five days, other than tradition. And it was in America, Henry Ford, in the 1920s, that changed from a six-day to a five-day week. And, and what I think the trial has proved is that working in a way that is most applicable to your organisation to achieve the sweet spot of the best productivity for the time... That's what you've got to be aiming at. It's not necessarily, let's just do four days. I think the real question for me is, what is the best thing for your organization? What are you going to get the best outcomes for? So I got to ask, how are you spending your extra weekend day these days now? So personally, um, I play golf first thing because I can't have my phone and it takes me away from work. I'm I'm not very good at it, but (laughs) uh, that means I have to, I focus on not being good at golf rather than work and that (laughs) sets my weekend up. But actually what I would say is now I've got into the swing of it over that long weekend. So to speak. I am so much better at my job and that surprised me. Simon Ursel of the firm Tyler Grange, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Enjoyed it. Tesla drivers are currently members of an exclusive club. Only they can roll up to those distinctive red and white superchargers, plug in with no fuss, and refill their battery super fast. Well, by next year, Tesla will open up a small portion of its proprietary charging network to the rest of us. The company's been promising to do this for years without following through, but now the White House says it has struck a deal. So what does this mean for drivers and for the company? NPR's Camila Dominoski is here to explain. Hey, Camila. Hi, Ari. So this was a big selling point for Tesla, its Mm -hmm. exclusive charger network. Why did it change the policy? Well, the short answer is that billions of federal dollars speak really loudly. It was a requirement for getting some of this money from the Biden administration promoting new chargers. Uh, Tesla will also be able to make money charging people who use these chargers in the future. But there are serious drawbacks to way, right? There's the risk of losing customers who are like, well, hey, maybe I don't need a Tesla for my next vehicle because I can still use the chargers. Um, Or the risk that the superchargers might get too crowded. That could be a drawback. So next week, Tesla is going to talk to its investors about its strategy, and we'll probably hear a little more about how it's balancing the pros and cons here. Why was the White House so focused on getting Tesla to open up these chargers? Well, charger availability is a huge part of why some people are reluctant to buy electric vehicles. You know, even if they don't go on road trips very often, they really want to be able to when they want to. And right now, the country doesn't have enough chargers, particularly fast chargers, for that to be feasible. And the ones that exist, they are not very reliable, except for Tesla. The Tesla supercharger network just works. So it's going to take some hardware and software changes for it to work with other vehicles, but that is allegedly going to happen. We should emphasize, though, it's not going to happen to the entire network. Tesla has agreed to open up 3,500 superchargers, and that's out of some 17,000 chargers that they have today. Okay, so that's a pretty small percentage. How much of a difference will that actually make? Well, it depends on which chargers they open up. Um, Tesla did something really interesting. They built chargers all over the country, including places where they aren't used very much, because they wanted people to feel like if they bought a Tesla, they could go anywhere. Other companies, when they're trying to decide if they want to build chargers, they're like, well, I'll put them where there are electric vehicles so they'll get used. Then people who don't have electric vehicles yet, they don't want to buy them until there are chargers. It's it's a chicken and egg problem, right? Mm-hmm. 
And Tesla kind of sidestepped that. Um, iccars.com, they looked at places where there are a lot of Tesla superchargers right now and basically no other chargers, very few other options. Mm. It's places like West Virginia, Mississippi, Indiana, Montana, where I live about two hours outside DC, the only fast charger in town is a Tesla. So if they open up those superchargers, which also aren't super crowded, so they might like that idea, that could actually be really impactful for these areas that are really just deserts for these fast chargers. And, and what does this all mean for the overall transition to electric vehicles? Well, fast chargers are a big deal. Having access to this, like I said, is a huge barrier. It's not the only barrier. There's also home charging, which is crucial. And what's behind all these chargers, the electric grid needs to produce a lot more power, a lot more clean power, have more wires to send it over. That's not as visible to the average driver, but all of that is just as important for pulling off this big switch. NPR's Camila Domanoski, thanks a lot. Thank you. Support for All Tech Considered comes from BetterHelp. Committed to supporting mental health through therapy, clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A week after California Senator Dianne Feinstein announced that she will not seek re-election in 2024, another hopeful has thrown her hat into the ring for that Senate seat. Congresswoman Barbara Lee from Oakland declared her candidacy today. Lee has been a member of Congress for 25 years and served in the California legislature before that. KQED Scott Schaefer just spoke with her and joins us now. Hi, Scott. Hey, Elsa. So what's the case that Barbara Lee makes for being California's next senator? Well, she definitely talks about her experience, you know, being a legislator for so long in Congress and in the state legislature. But I think the most compelling part of her pitch to voters is her biography, her life experience. You know, growing up in the segregated South, fighting to integrate her cheerleading squad in high school, which she mm. did with the NAACP, you know, being a single mom, attending college while on public assistance. And she spoke with me about why having someone with her background in the Senate matters. It's important for everyone in California, for the LGBTQ community, for seniors, for the disability community, for people of color, for women, for all of those who really haven't uh, had a, a champion and a voice. And he also says, of course, she'll be a fighter for all Californians, but those issues are the ones that are really close to her heart. Things like food insecurity, child care, uh, poverty. And of course, she wants to fill a void. There are no black women in the U.S. Senate, and she thinks uh, th there should be. Obviously, many would agree mm -hmm. with her. And that's uh, one, of the, one of her messages to voters. Okay. Well, obviously, Lee is no newcomer to California politics. She's been a career politician with a pretty progressive bent, as you've been talking about. What Given her record, what are sort of the accomplishments while in office that she's known for here in California? Well, she's long been aligned with the social justice and anti-war part of the Democratic Party, I would say, the Bernie Sanders wing, if you will. But I think one moment, Ilsa, stands above all others, and that was in September of 2001. There was a congressional vote to give President George W. Bush the authority to use force against Afghanistan. That, of course, was where bin Laden was when he mm -hmm. uh, you know, orchestrated the attacks. And her position was, you know, let's take a deep breath here. Let's not rush into something that could have unforeseen consequences or mire us in a war for a long time. 
she was the only person in the entire Congress to vote no against that authority. And that is a vote that has really stood the test of time. Well, Lee is now the third high-profile candidate to jump into this race. Can you talk a little bit about how the field is shaping up so far? Yeah, so all three are members of Congress from California, three Democrats, uh, two from Southern California. And I think all three would be considered progressives in pretty much any state. You've got Adam Schiff, who's a key ally of Nancy Pelosi. He managed the first House impeachment of President Trump. He's also was a member of the special House committee that investigated the January 6th attack on the Capitol. He is, I would say, the Democrats Republicans love to hate most. Uh, And then there's also Katie Porter. She flipped an Orange County congressional seat from red to blue in 2018. 18. I'd say she's best known for using her whiteboard to take down corporate CEOs like Jamie Dimon from J.P. Morgan Chase. She's got a big following on social media, very prolific as a fundraiser, relatively young at age 49. And then you've got Barbara Lee, who has served in the House the longest of those three, but who may be the least well-known. And that brings you to money. It takes a lot of money to run statewide in California, $50 million or more. She's not been known as a great fundraiser. So that's really going to be one of her big tests between now and next year when the election will be held. That is KQED's Scott Schaefer. Thank you so much, Scott. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 448 and coming up in about 15 minutes, you'll get an update on the cleanup after the Ohio train derailment. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. Join us at City Space Thursday, March 9th, for a conversation with Julian Shapiro-Barnum. He's the host of the web series Recess Therapy, featuring funny interviews with kids. For tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. It's 39 degrees in Boston, a chance of some rain tonight, mainly before midnight and lows overnight in the low 30s. Some sunshine to start the day tomorrow, then increasing clouds and highs on Wednesday in the mid-40s. Tomorrow night, a bit of rain and snow, little or no accumulation. Then Thursday, a rainy day with highs in the mid-30s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Harvard Art Museums, open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries, free Sundays, and new museums at night events. HarvardArtMuseums.org. Hollywood producer Dee Dee Gardner has delivered a string of acclaimed movies in the past few years, including Selma, 12 Years a Slave, and this year's Oscar contenders Women Talking and Blonde. I think I'm interested in the idea of complicity. What we know when we know it, when we admit to knowing it. Making movies that make an impact. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Growing up in Haiti, Jean Demarique found an escape from violence through hip-hop. When he was 18 years old, he discovered Toni Morrison. In Port-au-Prince, you have people who sell, like, uh, used books in the streets and 
I found a book of uh, Tony Morrison and I start to read it in the street. The book was beloved. Reading Tony Morrison, I I can travel away from my neighborhood. Jean Marie became a poet and playwright. We reached him in France to talk about his new book, a slim, brutal novel called A Son to be Sown. The English translation is out today. It's about a schoolgirl growing up in a slum. Her mother is a sex worker, her father figure a ruthless gang henchman. And she's constantly searching for the proper turns of phrase to express her condition and her love for a classmate. For me, this book is a testimony of living today in Haiti, being a child, and you have to grow up in a place saturated with violence, how you can become someone, how you can see the light over the night. I asked Jean de Maric about the neighborhood his protagonist lives in and the one he came from. The violence and the way that people live in these places it's uh it's a lot of people who have been done by by the government uh, and they don't have public services to to live with dignity and even that they fight for living and for me it's a it's a it's a story of of resistance also because these people fight for their lives uh, even that they they are in poverty. Hmm. Although the book is relentlessly violent, it is also beautifully poetic. Your main character, this 12-year-old girl, describes everything as a metaphor, especially the experience of poverty. How do you think it transforms the violence, the poverty, the experience that you're looking at to filter it through a poetic lens? I think that poetry helped me to write this book because uh, the situations are very horrible and I need to to find a language to to make something of them. Uh, poetry is it's like a, a victory for for the main character in, hmm. in, in the book uh, because poetry gives her the way to name the violence and she exists uh, by her voice, by her poetic voice. It's like um, a consolation for her because she's, she's trapped in a long night and, and she needs to see a little, a little bit of light. And I think that poetry, as it can give it in the language, it can give it in the life also. And is poetry also that for you? Does it give you a triumph, a consolation, a way of understanding violence that you experienced in your own life? I, I think that poetry saved my life, literally, because I, I grew up in a neighborhood where it was easier to find a gun than, than a book. Hmm. And once I, I met poetry, first through hip-hop and after in books, poetry gave me the way to understand what's happening around me and also give me a powerful way to exist in the world. 
because poetry gives me a voice. And today I can use it like a, a political weapon to, to resist and to tell the story of people from, from the margin. Mm -hmm. So I think that is the reason that I said that poetry literally saved my life. We hear so often in the news about violence and despair in Haiti, whether it's about gangs or poverty or governmental dysfunction or hunger. What do you think fiction can do for us that reports on the news cannot? Um, first, I think that fiction can make us traveling in our mind. And also fiction can be a way to make people understand better their reality. So I, I think it's a, a powerful way to, to raise awareness in the mind of the people. Even it's fiction, but it can open our eyes about things in the world that we get to change. For me, I was reading fictions from other writers and it participated to make of me a, a human being, not mm. only a writer, but a human being and a citizen. All this came from books. This book almost feels archetypal, like a classic Greek or Shakespearean tragedy where a character with little choice in life is provoked into actions that just ripple out into a chain of consequences. Were you thinking about those forms when you wrote this story? Not really, because I think that I didn't care about what form it will be uh, specifically, but what I wanted to say in this book was stronger than making a novel or making strictly a novel in a strictly form, but only experiencing writing and let the story be be told and always with poetry around me. Hmm. So this could have been called a 150-page novella or a book-length poem or a long, short story. You don't care what label it gets. Yeah, it, it's exactly... It's exactly that. And, you know, they used to to say to me that, oh, but it's it's not really a, a novel. It's like a long poem or it's not really a play. It's a poem. And it's good for me because I know that uh, poetry, it's like my, my first uh, material. So... I work with it and it can be in fiction or, or in other way, but it's like the light of the language for me. Hmm. Jean Demeric's new novel is called A Son to be Sown. Thank you for talking with us about it. Thank you a lot for inviting me. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Drexel University 
whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at drexel.edu slash ambitioncantwait. And from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, VentureX. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the William T. Grant Foundation at wtgrantfoundation.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 39 degrees in Boston, coming up on 5 o'clock. In about 15 minutes, you'll get an update on the discovery of a 500-year-old gold necklace inscribed with the initials of King Henry VIII and his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Russia says it is suspending participation in the new START Treaty, an agreement that governs the U.S. and Russia's nuclear weapons supply. And I think this is bad for the security of the U.S. and its allies, and also for Russia. It's Tuesday, February 21st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in Fort Lisa Mullins. The Supreme Court heard arguments involving a law that provides tech companies protection against being sued over content posted by users. Every other industry has to internalize the costs of its conduct. Why is it that the tech industry gets a pass? You'll consider the potential consequences of that case. Also, you'll hear about the great backyard bird count. It's 501 First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden told a crowd of thousands in Warsaw that America and its allies will have Ukraine's back for the long haul. NPR's Asma Khalid reports he insists Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. A year ago, Russian tanks rolled into Ukraine. But Biden says Ukraine to this day remains free. He cautioned that there could be hard and bitter days ahead in the fight, and Russia may doubt how long allies will remain united in supporting Ukraine. But there should be no doubt. Our support for Ukraine will not waver. NATO will not be divided, and we will not tire. People in the crowd waved Polish, Ukrainian, and American flags. The celebratory mood was a stark contrast to the somber atmosphere when Biden spoke here last year at the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Asma Khalid, NPR News, Warsaw. One of the organizers of Mexico's deadly war on drugs has been found guilty of drug trafficking. NPR's Jasmine Gartz reports he is the highest-ranking Mexican official ever to be tried in the United States. Genaro Garcia Luna headed Mexico's federal police and became the country's top public safety official between 2006 and 2012. He's been on trial in a federal district court in Brooklyn, New York, accused of taking millions of dollars in bribes from the very drug cartels he was supposed to be cracking down on. 
He pleaded not guilty, but throughout the trial, several drug traffickers gave testimony that Garcia Luna was in fact on the payroll for Mexico's most powerful criminal organization, the Sinaloa cartel. After three days of deliberation, he was convicted of drug trafficking and now faces a minimum of 10 years in prison and a maximum sentence of life. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, New York. Congresswoman Barbara Lee is joining the competitive 2024 Democratic race for the California Senate seat. As NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports, she's the third House member to announce a bid to replace retiring Senator Dianne Feinstein, who's held the seat for three decades. Lee has represented California in the U.S. House since 1998 and is the highest-ranking black woman appointed to Democratic leadership in the House. There are currently no black women serving in the U.S. Senate. In her announcement video, Lee highlighted her record on legislative protections for women and the LGBTQ community. And for those who say my time has passed, well, when does making change go out of style? Lee is known for being the sole no vote in Congress in authorizing the use of military force after the September 11th terrorist attacks. California representatives Katie Porter and Adam Schiff have already thrown their hats in the ring for the Senate seat. Barbara Sprint, NPR News, Washington. Wall Street lower by the closing bell, the Dow down 697 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is highlighting a recently passed federal trauma response law. Today, the Massachusetts Democrat joined survivors of the Boston Marathon bombing to pay tribute to the Post-Disaster Mental Health Response Act. It expands mental health supports for survivors of natural disasters, terrorist attacks, and various forms of violence. Presley said the act was inspired by an email from Boston Marathon survivor Manya Chalinsky, and she thanked Chalinsky and other trauma survivors for demanding legislative change. It is not easy to relive your trauma, to share your story, repeatedly in the aim of meaningful policy change. Your experiences inform this legislation every step of the way. President Biden signed the Post-Disaster Mental Health Response Act into law in December. Another New England community has been targeted by hate vandalism. Officials in New Hampshire say they're investigating at least 10 instances of swastikas and other hate messages spray-painted around Portsmouth this morning. One of the targets was a synagogue in the downtown area. Investigators are asking residents and businesses to come forward if they have any information about the crime or if they come across any relevant surveillance video. The Healy administration has appointed a new undersecretary of law enforcement for the state. Gina Kwan is a veteran prosecutor. She previously worked in the Massachusetts Attorney General's office, where she most recently served as chief of the Criminal Bureau overseeing major investigations. She starts her new job immediately. The New England Aquarium is extending its hours this week to accommodate an increase in visitors during school vacation week. Aquarium official Alan Hunt says if you want to avoid the crowds, then consider visiting earlier in the morning. The best times to visit are close to when we open at 9 a.m. as possible. From 9 to about 11, we just open. It's just ramping up with visitors. And then any time after 3 p.m., between 11 and 3 are peak times. The building will be more crowded than it will be early in the day or near the end of the day. Hunt says you should reserve your spot at the aquarium online at least a day before your visit. He says without a re- reservation, you could risk showing up at the waterfront attraction when tickets are already sold out for the day. 
In the forecast, a chance of some rain in Boston, mainly before midnight and overnight lows in the low 30s. Some sunshine early tomorrow, then increasing clouds and highs in the mid 40s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. It's been just over two weeks since a train carrying toxic chemicals derailed near the Ohio-Pennsylvania border. Now officials in the area say it's time for Norfolk Southern to take more responsibility and pay for the costs of cleanup. And they've announced additional assistance for people concerned about the impact the derailment may have on their health. Reed Frazier with the Allegheny Front was at the press conference this afternoon and... Read Norfolk Southern has been handling the cleanup process, and people are not happy about it. So what did local leaders say today? Well, EPA Administrator Michael Regan was there, and he said his agency is ordering Norfolk Southern to clean up and remediate the site. Norfolk Southern will have to produce a work plan, which will have to be reviewed and approved by EPA. Regan said that Norfolk Southern won't be let off the hook for the mess it's created. Norfolk Southern will clean up all contamination in soil and water, and safely transport that contamination to the appropriate locations to ensure that residents are not impacted further. From the debris and the chemicals you see in the waterways to the soil in and around the crash site. And he said if the work is not done to EPA specifications, the agency will step in and perform the work itself and Norfolk Southern could end up paying triple the cost of the cleanup. Meanwhile, Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio said cleanup at the site continues. There's been thousands of cubic yards of soil as well as over a million gallons of contaminated water removed. There's also removed. There's also a health clinic that anyone with symptoms in the vicinity can go to that's been set up. Here's what he said about that. This is really in response to the concerns that we have heard uh, that people want to be able to go someplace and get some answers. Uh, about any kind of medical problem that they believe that they they are, in fact, having. This accident happened on the Ohio-Pennsylvania border, and we've talked a lot about uh, the impact on Ohio residents. What about people in Pennsylvania? How have they been affected? Well, they've been very concerned. As you know, it's only a few hundred yards from the border, the accident site, and Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro has been highly critical of what's been happening. In fact, today he called Norfolk Southern incompetent and greedy. Here's what he had to say. They chose not to participate in the unified command. They gave us inaccurate information and conflicting modeling data, and they refused to explore or articulate alternative courses of action when we were dealing with the derailment in the early days. Okay, so the mayor of East Palestine has been on the front lines from the very beginning of this. What does he believe should happen going forward? I mean, is he looking for criminal action against Norfolk Southern? Well, all he really wants right now is for them to clean up their mess that they've made. Um, he says he thinks this was an accident. What caused it? He doesn't know. Um, he said that justice for him would be turning the clock back to February 2nd, the day before the accident. We're a quiet little town of 4,700, and that, that's, that's where we want to go. Um, I really hope something good could come out of this. Um, I know that sounds odd with uh, what's transpired in the last few weeks, but, you know, our goal is to, you know, our town comes out better. 
And of course, this derailment and everything that has happened since has raised a lot of questions about rail safety more broadly. Did folks at the press conference say anything about that today? Yeah, Governor Mike DeWine has called for more strict regulations. Um, the National Transportation Safety Board is currently conducting the accident investigation. Congressional leaders say the results of that investigation will determine whether there need to be any new laws or rules put in place. Uh, U.S. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg said his department would be calling for stronger safety rules, and he's calling on Congress for to act to help them uh, make that happen. That's Reed Frazier with the Allegheny Front. Thanks for your reporting. Thank you. Today, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced that his country is suspending its participation in a major treaty that limits U.S. and Russian nuclear weapons. Now, this suspension follows months of diplomatic tension over the treaty. And NPR science and security correspondent Jeff Brumfield is here to explain what this all means. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Elsa. How are you? Okay, I'm good. Can you just tell us a little bit more about this treaty? Like, what is it and what does it mean to suspend it? Right. This treaty was called New Start. It is called New Start. It began back in 2011. And the main thing it does is limit the number of strategic nuclear weapons each side can have deployed. So under this treaty, each side can have around 1,500 weapons on bombers, submarines, and missiles. That might seem like a lot, but at various points in the Cold War, the U.S. and Russia had over 30,000 nuclear weapons each. So this is a big difference. Now, Russia did say today they'll continue to abide by that 1,500 number, at least for now. Okay, which seems like good news, but I guess there's a catch, right? Like, what's lost in suspending this treaty? That's right. Well, former President Ronald Reagan had that old chestnut he liked to roll out, trust but verify, and Mm -hmm. we're losing pretty much all the verification. The U.S. and Russia, believe it or not, used to travel to each other's nuclear bases and actually count warheads on top of missiles. Mm. That hasn't happened since the start of the pandemic. And after today's announcement, it's clear it won't be resuming. They also used to tell each other a lot about where missiles and bombs were and where they were headed. So say a bomber was moving from one airbase to another, the U.S. might tell the Russians, hey, we're going to send this this bomber over there. And it looks like those notifications are also now suspended. Now, there is one kind of notification the Russians say they'll continue to give, and that's the testing of intercontinental ballistic missiles. Those are the kinds of missiles they'd use to send a nuke to the U.S., and you can imagine it's a good idea to let America know if you're going to test one so they don't get the wrong idea. That's kind of the bare minimum you you would do. Right, exactly. Well, obviously, U.S.-Russia relations have been less than ideal for quite some time now. But what did the Kremlin say about why Russia is doing this specifically at this moment? Putin, in his speech, said he was simply suspending participation. But a statement from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs made out made it pretty clear that this all comes back to the war in Ukraine. I, I spoke to Olga Oliker with the nonprofit International Crisis Group. She says the Russia knows the U.S. and its allies care about this treaty. We can punish the West by taking away the thing that they care about. And she also says Russia has been making nuclear threats throughout the conflict. And those threats might seem more credible if the U.S. doesn't know exactly where the weapons are, if that reporting isn't happening. Well, I guess, Jeff, the biggest question on people's minds might be, is this the beginning of a new arms race? What do you think? I asked Oliker that, and here's what she said. Probably not, or at least not immediately, but the door's open. 
So overall, this is a very bad thing. There's there's sort of a catch-22 to this treaty in that it only applied to deployed nuclear weapons. The U.S. and Russia have thousands of weapons in storage, and it would be relatively straightforward to pull those weapons out, bolt them onto a missile or put them in a bomber, and things could really start to spiral out of control from there. So that's, that's the concern. Indeed. That is NPR's Jeff Brumfield. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you. Charlie Clark had only been metal detecting for six months when he found buried treasure in 2019. I just lost a, um, a dog, which is a really good companion of mine. A friend of mine asked me if we wanted to go out, do a bit of metal detecting in the field, uh, gain a bit of fresh air. After hours of turning up scrap metal in a field in Warwickshire, England, Clark's metal detector beeped again. So he dug in the rain until he was elbow deep in the ground and pulled out a large gold necklace with a heart-shaped pendant. All of a sudden, the weather doesn't matter. You know, it's your adrenaline through the roof. You're excited to see the, the, just the colour in gold. just changes everything. The 34-year-old cafe owner knew he had found something special, but it wasn't until he met with someone from the British Museum that he realised just how important it was. When I first handed it to her, her reaction said it all. A jaw drop you could see in her eyes. She was shaking holding it. The British Museum announced the discovery of the necklace in late January, and it turns out it's over 500 years old and inscribed with the letters H and K for King Henry VIII and his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. Rachel King is the British Museum's curator of Renaissance Europe, and she says she was in disbelief the first time she saw it in person. Even In my wildest dreams, I would never have imagined something like this. It's so unheard of, something so exquisite. Well, exquisite and large. It's a big piece of bling, as one would say. The necklace's chain is made up of 75 gold links and weighs more than half a pound. The heart-shaped pendant is about two inches across, and it's decorated with an intertwined red and white Tudor rose and a pomegranate symbolizing King Henry VIII's marriage to Catherine. And they're more than just intertwined. They grow from the same bough. This is a reference to the moment they have their first child. Now the necklace will be valued. Clark and the landowner will eventually split the reward. And Clark, well, he's hooked on the hobby. As a child, you always want to find treasure, don't you? And, um, I mean, you're doing exactly that. You're finding treasure. The fact that it's changed history, it's a national importance. You never know where this hobby can take you. So to any aspiring metal detectorists out there, Charlie Clark says, get out there. You may not find a historic artifact, but at the very least, you'll get some fresh air. All Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed. Enjoy expanded content or connect to your favorite member station. This is NPR.
Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 518, and here's a great way to follow the news on WBUR pretty much anywhere, anytime. Just tap to listen on the WBUR mobile app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord. Owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. In business news, a Massachusetts-based biomanufacturing startup is making significant cutbacks. The Boston Business Journal reports National Resilience, Inc. is making several layoffs at its Alston manufacturing site and selling a second site in Marlboro. On Wall Street, the Dow closed down 697 points, just over 2%, finishing at 33,129. The Nasdaq's down 294 points today, or 2.5 percent, closing at 11,492. The S&P 500 down 81 points, 2 percent, closing at 39.97. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. It's 39 degrees in Boston, a chance of some rain around this evening, lows overnight in the low 30s. Some sunshine to start your Wednesday, then increasing clouds and highs tomorrow in the mid-40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the candidate search process. Businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates, all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Pete Reed was a humanitarian aid worker and former U.S. Marine who served in Afghanistan. He's also one of the many thousands who lost their lives in Ukraine, as the world notes the one-year mark since Russia's full-scale invasion on February 24th. Reed founded a group called Global Response Medicine, which gave life-saving first aid to civilians on the front lines of conflict zones. In 2016, Reed described his work to a Fox News reporter in Mosul, Iraq. To the end of the day, they're just people. We're just trying to make it so a few more people come home, a few more kids live. And that is exactly what Reed was doing in Ukraine this month, just a few weeks ago, when he was killed by a Russian missile. Here he is, as described by some of the people who knew and loved him. My name is Alex Potter, and Pete Reed was my husband. So we met in Iraq, in Mosul, in 2016. I went over there as a journalist to cover the battle, um, but when I got there, there was very little um, frontline trauma care going on, except by this one small group of people, which was headed up by Pete. We didn't know each other ahead of time, but um, I Facebook messaged him and asked if I could join. I worked at these trauma stabilization points with him throughout the battle, and we spent one week in the field together, and he was just like, I'm in love with you. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> that was fast. 
it was mutual and very, very quick. What I thought was going to be a two-week trip turned into the whole year in Iraq, treating patients together. And we were just perfect for each other. Even before I knew him, from what I've heard from other people, he always had a really huge heart. Pete is somebody that has spent, you know, the majority of his 33 years on the planet helping other people, um, first in Afghanistan for the Marines, and then soon after as a humanitarian medical provider, as a paramedic. I'm Andrew Lustig, president and founder of Global Outreach Doctors. I met Pete Reed about seven years ago. We had collaborated in um, the Battle of Mosul in Iraq, and we've uh, been in touch ever since. Pete is the kind of guy that is really organized, and he's very much a collaborator, which means that he engages other NGOs and other actors in the region. I knew Pete was the right man for the Ukraine country director for Global Outreach Doctors. When I was looking back through our messages, he was very happy to be going over. And one of the things that he said is, I'm excited to prove my worth again. And I tried to be like, you know, you are worthy of all these things, but um, I don't know if he believed it. The beginning of the day when Pete was alive, Give me a minute. My name is Max, and I walked from the first day with uh, Pete Reed when he arrived to Donbass, Ukraine. So, on the day when everything happened and went wrong, awfully wrong, we were driving to Bakhmut in the morning, and I was in the vehicle with Pete and. He asked me to put some music. <laughs> I've turned on some good old pop punk bands like Blink 182. We just laughed driving through a cold Donbass morning. It was amazing. The first the beginning of the day when Pete was alive um, started with meeting a mayor about 45 minutes from Bakhmut, getting ready to set up critical care points. Um, a military vehicle drove up and screamed, we need medics, we need medics. And at that point, um, Pete led his team to Bakhmut. Pete was involved in the care and rescue of an elderly woman. And it's at that point when his vehicle, uh, an ambulance of sort, was targeted um, that Pete lost his life. For me as Ukrainian, the thing that Pete Reed came here to Ukraine to help Ukraine with its struggle for freedom and independence is the most admirable thing, but especially knowing his background, that he went through several wars, but still, nevertheless, he chose to 
come here and to go to the hottest spot on the front line. This is the thing to admire for me. I'm just feeling very numb right now. Honestly, my sympathetic nervous system was in overdrive for like six days until I could go get him. I just know that it seems like a horrific death and it was, but it was immediate. And he died doing what he loved, honestly. He was just a, can I swear on air? Is that fine? <laughs> He is just a really incredible person. Like, I loved him so, so much, and he was the truly, like, the brightest light in my life as a husband and a person and my best friend and adventure buddy. He was the best. Those were the voices of Alex Potter, Pete Reed's widow, Andrew Lustig, who worked with him, and Reed's Ukrainian colleague, Max, whose full name is being withheld for his safety. Pete Reed was 33 years old when he was killed in Ukraine this month by a Russian laser-guided missile. Independent video analysis has suggested the targeting of Reed's ambulance crew was intentional and could be considered a potential war crime. This story was produced by Matt Ozug and Quill Lawrence. Later this week, we'll have more on the war in Ukraine one year in. It's a conflict that has tested the NATO alliance. Managing this question of the future with Russia is the big challenge. And there's also the question of war crimes. For some people, it's most important to see Putin and the generals prosecuted. I think for some other people, it is more important to see the people who pulled the trigger. And tomorrow on the program, we'll look at how much aid the Biden administration has committed, what it's for, and what kind of difference it might make. This is NPR News. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 529. And coming up in about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll get the latest on Don Lemon. He's scheduled to return to the air on CNN tomorrow after an absence following his remarks about Republican presidential contender Nikki Haley. Join us at City Space Monday, March 20th. Former WBUR Morning Edition host Bob Oaks interviews The New Yorker's Adam Gopnik about Gopnik's new book, The Real Work. For tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. It's 39 degrees in Boston with some rain around tonight. Sunshine tomorrow for starters, then increasing clouds and highs on Wednesday reaching the mid-40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Analytics at Boston College, a degree that helps students translate data insights into dynamic business models. bc.edu slash analytics. I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story. That's why I love NPR's politics beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. 
Your car has a story too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more at wbur.org/cars. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Environmental Protection Agency says it's closely overseeing the cleanup from the massive train derailment and chemical spill in East Palestine, Ohio. EPA Administrator Michael Regan is warning train operator Norfolk Southern to take every available measure to clean up the contaminants. If the company fails to complete any action ordered, by EPA, the agency will immediately step in, conduct the work ourselves, and then force Norfolk Southern to pay triple in cost granted by my agency. Those costs could go up to $70,000 per day. State government officials say the chemicals that spilled into the Ohio River are no longer a risk, but people in the community claim they're still suffering from headaches and eye irritation. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and its nonprofit investment manager have agreed to pay $5 million to settle charges filed by the Securities and Exchange Commission. NPR Scott Horsley reports they were accused of trying to conceal tens of billions of dollars worth of church investments. The SEC alleges that for more than two decades, the Mormon Church and its nonprofit investment manager tried to obscure their control over a sprawling investment portfolio by using more than a dozen shell companies. Those shell companies filed paperwork claiming control over the investments, which ultimately grew to about $32 billion, even though the money was really controlled by the church's nonprofit advisor. The church's holdings came to light after a former employee of the management company filed a whistleblower complaint. The church said in a statement it regrets the errors, adding all of its investments are made to support its mission, following the principle of preparing for the future, both near and long term. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. At the close on Wall Street, the Dow was down 697 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The racial makeup of people dying of COVID in Massachusetts appears to be shifting. In the first two years of the pandemic, deaths in the state were two to three times higher in Hispanic, Black, and Asian populations than among white populations. Professor Jonathan Levy of the Boston University School of Public Health says those mortality patterns began to change in 2022 when public health protections eased. There's been some survey evidence, for example, that Uh, Both black and Hispanic populations tended to wear masks more uh, in the spring of 2022 than white populations. And so that could contribute to some of the the shift. Levy's analysis was conducted for the Boston Globe. He says the disparities in the race and ethnicity mortality rate have more to do with societal norms than biology. Rhode Island Congressman David Cicilline plans to step down later this year. The 61-year-old Democrat has been named president and CEO of the Rhode Island Foundation, effective June 1st. The foundation is Rhode Island's largest funder of nonprofits. Cicilline has represented Rhode Island in the U.S. House since 2011. Before that, he was mayor of Providence from 2003 to 2011. The mayor of New Bedford wants to abolish a 10 percent pay penalty in the city. The ordinance reduces the pay of managers and city government who don't live in New Bedford 
by 10 percent. The ordinance was passed last November after the city council overrode a veto by Mayor John Mitchell. Mitchell argues the pay penalty makes it more difficult to attract talented candidates to the city. The slopes may be busy for public school vacation week, but if you're not much of a skier, then you might want to try tubing instead. Dylan Mahan is the marketing director at Ski Butternut in Western Massachusetts, and he says conditions are good despite some recent warm weather. Even when snow's not in people's yards, we still have a very deep snow base for the tubing center built up, and it does pretty well through the uh, warm weather and, and holds up pretty well. He suggests making a reservation before visiting because tickets are limited and sell out fast. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Rose Art Museum with Lyle Ashton Harris, our first and last love, an exploration of identity and legacy. Tickets at brandeis.edu slash rose. It's 39 degrees in Boston with a bit of rain around in places tonight. Tomorrow, some sunshine to start the day, then increasing clouds and highs in the mid-40s. On Thursday, rain, highs in the mid-30s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. A worried and wary Supreme Court heard arguments today in a case that could revolutionize the architecture of the Internet and social media companies. At issue in the case is a 1996 law that shields Internet platforms from being sued for material that appears on their sites. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. On one side of the case is the family of an American student killed in a terrorist attack in Paris. Her family claims that YouTube, owned by Google, aided and abetted in the attack by recommending ISIS videos to people who might be interested in them. The argument is that by recommending these videos, Google was promoting ISIS recruiting, propaganda, and terrorist attacks. Joining Google on the other side of the case are some of the most valuable companies in the world, Facebook, Twitter, as well as lots of smaller companies, which together represent a huge portion of the U.S. economy. With the stakes in the case so high, the justices today seemed both cautious and skeptical of some of the arguments made by both sides, with no clear liberal-conservative ideological divide. Justice Kagan seemed to sum up the countervailing winds when discussing how the EU deals with these issues, including levying a huge fine against Google. But, Kagan noted, that fine was not levied by any court. I think that that's my concern, is I can imagine a world where you're right that none of this stuff gets protection. And why is it that the tech industry gets a pass? On the other hand, I mean, we're a court. We really don't know about these things. And then gesturing to her colleagues on the bench, she added this. You know, these are not like the nine greatest experts on the Internet. (laughs) 
That said, the justices tried their best repeatedly to try to find a line between what's permissible for Internet providers to do in organizing content on their platforms. Justice Thomas asked whether algorithms are the same across the board for cooking videos or racing videos or ISIS videos. Lawyer Eric Schnapper, representing the family of the young woman killed in Paris, said the algorithms are the same, but when it comes to ISIS videos, the result is that companies are encouraging illegal conduct under the Federal Anti-Terrorism Act, a federal law which bars material aid to terrorist groups. And yet, observed Justice Thomas, the algorithm is the same across the board. If you're interested in cooking, you don't want thumbnails on light jazz. Chief Justice Roberts pointed to an analogy made by Google. A bookseller uh, that has a table uh, uh, with sports books on it, and somebody comes in and says, I'm looking for the book about Roger Maris, uh, and the bookseller says, well, it's over there on the table with the other sports books. Isn't that analogous to what's happening here? Lawyer Schnapper said no, there is a difference. What's happening at YouTube is they're not doing that. I type in uh, ISIS video and they're going to be a catalog of thumbnails which they created. The justices didn't seem to see a clear line in that. Justice Sotomayor, how do I draw a line between an algorithm and active collusion? Justice Barrett, what about a retweet of a link to a terrorist video? Would Twitter be liable? Justice Gorsuch, should AI be treated differently than algorithms because it's actual content that's being created and provided by the platform? Justice Kavanaugh worried about the consequences of any broad decision in this case. It could, he said, crash the digital economy. Lawsuits will be nonstop. Defending Google, lawyer Lisa Blatt agreed, arguing that the 1996 federal law at issue in this case was aimed at shielding Internet platforms from lawsuits. But the basic features of topic headings up next, um, trending now, those kinds of things we would say are core inherent. They're no different than expressing what is implicit in any publishing. But Chief Justice Roberts was skeptical. Well, it seems to me that the the language of the statute doesn't go that far. While the justices indicated that it might be better for Congress to take on the task of modifying the 1996 law, at the same time, several fired some pointed shots across the bow, hinting at limited patience with the Internet platform providers. Indeed, while today's case could well end in a fizzle, more cases are expected next term. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. And today's story comes from Cynthia Page. Some 50 years ago, Page was a young copywriter working in Manhattan. And one night, after missing the train home, she found a phone booth in the train station and called her husband. When she hung up the phone and turned around, she saw that she was surrounded by a group of tall, threatening-looking men. I don't know what these people would have done. Maybe they were there just simply to scare me. All I can say is it was obvious that the intent was to absolutely obliterate me from the view of anyone else. There was no way anyone could see that I was in that phone booth. It was such a shock. I'm not usually frightened of situations, but I was legitimately frightened. And just as I'm looking at these people and thinking, what in the world am I going to do? 
out of literally nowhere comes this booming voice. Um, angry. Come on, what are you doing? We are going to miss our train. And I remember thinking, what in the world? And and it's like it's like the Red Sea parted. I mean, this sea of these great big men sort of parted. And marching through came this well-dressed, well-suited man, very purposely marching through, opened the phone booth door, grabbed me by the arm, yanked me out of there, and marched me to the train, talking as loudly as he could as we were on the way to the train. I'd never met this man in my life, never seen him. I had no idea who he was. And he kept talking as he yanked me out of there. You know, I've told you not to go in there. We can't wait. We're going to miss our train. He went on and on and on. He installed me on the train. And I don't know where he went. I didn't see him again. But um, I have remembered it forever. I think anyone who has ever benefited from the true kindness of strangers, just plain unwarranted, unnecessary kindness, um, I think it does remind you what kind of kindness there is out there. It reminds you of the connection that we all have together at some very deep-rooted level. And um, it is a wonderful feeling. Cynthia Page of Los Altos, California. You can find more stories like this on the My Unsung Hero podcast. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from Angie. Angie's list is now Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. CNN star Don Lemon has been making news lately for the wrong kinds of reasons. He offended women across the country and in his own newsroom on Thursday with sexist comments. He apologized. Now he has taken some time off, but he is due back on the air tomorrow morning. And Pure Media correspondent David Fulkenflick is here to explain what's going on over at CNN. Hi, David. Hey, Ari. Uh, start with what Don Lemon said. What got him in trouble? Well, it started with Nikki Haley. She was kicking off her presidential campaign for the Republican nomination for next year, but she did last week. She said anyone running for president over 75 should have to take a test for cognitive function and release it publicly. And that was clearly a dig at President Biden, but also her Republican opponent, former boss, former President Donald Trump. I want to play for you what Don Lemon said. You can really kind of hear co-host Poppy Harlow incredulous at what she's hearing. Here's how it played out. This whole talk about age makes me uncomfortable. I think that I think it's the wrong road to go down. She says people, you know, politicians or something are not in their prime. Nikki Haley is in her prime. Sorry. When a woman is considered to be in her prime in her 20s and 30s and maybe 40s. What are you that's talking about? That's not according to me. Prime for what? Uh, it depends. I mean, it's just like prime. If you look it up, it'll if you look, if you Google when is a woman in her prime, it'll say 20s, 30s and 40s. 
Look it up, he said. So Poppy Harlow gave him a chance to walk it back. Our former beloved colleague, Audie Cornish, who's now with CNN, did so too. Didn't really happen on the air. So what went on behind the scenes? Well, the first thing, Nikki Haley started fundraising on this almost immediately. Uh, Chris Licht is the chairman of CNN. He briefly addressed it in a staff meeting Thursday. He did so then again Friday. Apparently that hadn't done the trick. He called it upsetting, unacceptable, and unfair. Uh, Not only presumably Nikki Haley, but also to his female colleagues. And on that conference call with staff Friday morning, Don Lemon followed Chris Licht. He apologized apparently for about six minutes. He talked about his own status as a, a gay black man. Lemon was off Monday, CNN said that it was planned for the President's Day holiday. Late last night, Licht sent out a terse note to staff. He said Lemon had agreed to have what he called formal training. Licht said CNN balances accountability with fostering a culture in which people can own, learn, and grow from their own mistakes. How does this fit in with Don Lemon as we know him as a public figure? Is it out of character for him? It's not entirely out of character. I mean, he came from primetime as a solo host and as a star, and he was known for occasionally saying things that might well get him in trouble. It's not sort of simply delivering the headlines, right? Uh, I think in coming over to the morning show, it was evident over the weeks and months since that happened that he saw himself as the main star of the show in a way that perhaps uh, executives uh, and his co-host didn't intend. It was meant to be this trio, Don Lemon, Poppy Harlow, and Caitlin Collins, there were reports in December of him belittling Collins off the air in a way that she felt very demeaned by. And let's just agree that on the air, he sure talks over them a lot. What are the stakes here for CNN and for Licht? And where, where do they go from here? Well, Chris Licht has, uh, you know, effectively been charged with refreshing CNN, moving it away from what was perceived as a strong anti-Trump lineup in primetime and elsewhere. He has a history of inventing these successful AM shows. He's trying to replicate the, the magic here. I think what we're going to see now is not only whatever this formal uh, training is for Lemon, but also unrelenting scrutiny. A year from now, people either look back and laugh and say, look how far we've come, or they'll point to this moment as the reason that Don Lemon had to go. And either this can prove to be a problem solved for Chris Licht and on to others, or a big headache and a sea filled with them. NPR Media correspondent David Fulkenflick, thanks. You bet. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 548 and coming up in about five minutes or so here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll hear about the Great Backyard Bird Count, an annual citizen science project gathering data about wild birds. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Elliott Community Human Services, providing recovery-oriented care for those with behavioral health and substance needs with evidence-based treatment. ElliottCHS.org. Join us at City Space Tuesday, March 14th, to celebrate National Pi Day, Pi as in 3.14, and as in the date, you'll meet Lauren Coe, a baker and the author of the New York Times best-selling cookbook, Pieometry. For tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. It's 39 degrees in Boston with a chance of some rain around this evening. And then tomorrow, some sunshine for starters, then increasing clouds and highs in the mid-40s. On Thursday, rain, highs in the mid-30s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. 
I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, Andrea Campbell joins us for the first time since becoming the state's top lawyer. It's been a journey from Boston City Council to the Attorney General's office. We find out more about her priorities and how she'll bring her Boston experience to her work as the people's lawyer. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. The Biden administration is moving forward with tougher restrictions on asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border. A proposed rule published today would make it harder for migrants to get asylum if they cross the border into the U.S. illegally after passing through Mexico or any other country without seeking protection. Critics compare the rule to a similar effort by the Trump administration, and they are vowing to fight it. NPR's Joel Rose covers immigration for NPR and joins us now. Hi, Joel. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so how would this proposed regulation work? Like, walk us through it. Sure. The rule says migrants would be presumed to be ineligible for asylum if they pass through a third country, for example, Mexico, without seeking protection there, and then cross into the U.S. illegally. And that's a big departure from current policy, which says you simply have to be on U.S. soil to seek asylum. Exactly. So why is the Biden administration proposing this rule? Well, migrant apprehensions have been at record levels for the last two years. And the reality reality is that there is political pressure to do something about that. Although the Biden administration denies that that's the motivation here. On a call with reporters, senior officials said they want to deter migrants from crossing the border illegally and encourage them to use legal pathways instead, a combination of carrots and sticks, in other words. Mm. On the call today, one official described this rule as an emergency measure for what they anticipate will be a temporary surge, their word, in migration when the pandemic border restrictions known as Title 42 are lifted. For years now, immigration officials have been leaning heavily on those restrictions in order to quickly expel migrants and to manage the border, really. Biden officials seem to be looking at this rule almost as a kind of succession plan for when Title 42 goes away. Well, it sounds like immigrant advocates are not thrilled about this. What are they saying? Yeah, horrific, shameful are a couple of the reactions today that stood out. Advocates say the Biden administration is breaking its promise to restore asylum protections at the U.S.-Mexico border. And they argue this proposed rule closely mirrors a Trump administration policy. The Trump version would have been a near total ban on migrants seeking asylum after passing through another country with very few exceptions. Several courts have found that rule unlawful and immigrant advocates have made no secret that they will go to court and try to block this rule too if if it comes to that. Um, Advocates argue there are just very limited asylum options in Mexico or in Central America, so that really is not a viable option for many migrants. Well, how is the Biden administration responding to all of these points brought by advocates? Well, they argue this rule is different from the Trump version because it's not intended to cut off asylum completely, but instead to direct asylum seekers into these new and existing legal pathways. For example, the Biden administration is emphasizing this new system for some migrants from four countries, Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, who can get temporary permission to live and work in the U.S. legally if they have a financial sponsor and and meet other requirements. Immigration authorities also want to encourage migrants from other places to use a new app that they are calling CBP-1 to schedule their appointments at official ports of entry to seek asylum. And finally, uh, the Biden administration says this new rule includes some exceptions for vulnerable migrants which they argue is a key difference from the Trump-era policy and why they think this rule could survive in court. 
what's the timing of all this, Joel? Like, when would this new asylum rule actually take effect? Uh, the plan is that it'll take effect when the Title 42 restrictions lift. The administration is proceeding as if that will happen when the COVID public health emergency ends. That's currently set for May 11th. Of course, there could be lawsuits or other surprises, as we have seen several times before with Title 42. But mm-hmm. the Biden administration wants to have these rules ready to go quickly. There's a 30-day public comment period, and then they're going to publish a final rule. That is NPR's Joel Rose. Thank you, Joel. You bet. If you follow NPR on Instagram, which we hope you do, we're just at NPR, you may have seen a video we shared over the weekend of someone whose backyard was absolutely loaded with birds. That's a lot of birds. What are they doing? There's one, two, there's like seven million birds out there. Of course, that video was just to get NPR's followers' attention because we wanted to find out if they were participating in a real event, the Great Backyard Bird Count. That's the annual citizen science project that gathers data about wild birds. Participants go outside for at least 15 minutes and identify as many birds as they possibly can. The organizers even have an app to help with the identifying. Well, the answer was a resounding yes, beginning with Stephanie Burt, who participated in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. I saw a lot of things in the time period that I was counting, including cardinals uh, that I love. But I added two birds to my life list. One is the hooded merganser, and the other one is the cedar waxwing. I'm very new at all this, and those are pretty common birds based on what the app told me. But they looked anything but common to me. The merganser with its tufted feathers, it was uh, feeding and swimming right on the edge of the marsh. And the waxwing was in some small bushes. It had such distinct coloring and such a loud voice that I couldn't help but notice it. So they were beautiful. And I'm glad to know that those birds exist right alongside us when we're just going about our daily lives and rarely notice them going about their lives. Hi, my name is Debbie Sodal. I live in the Pacific Northwest in a beautiful town called Mount Vernon, Washington. We're lucky enough to get winter migratory birds here, including hundreds of thousands of snow geese that migrate all the way from Russia every single winter. Just this morning alone, I have counted over 30 different species and viewed thousands of geese, swans, and other birds. Hello, this is Lynn Kelts responding to NPR. I have been doing the big backyard bird count for a couple years, started during COVID as a nice way to spend my time. I have continued to watch the birds at my feeders out my window. It's fascinating to watch them. It helps science, and it makes me happy just to see the birds. Right now, the doves are chasing each other around in the yard. Uh, So I'm going to keep doing it, and I hope other people will also enjoy it. Thanks. got to see the diversity of bird species in the heart of the city, and being part of the citizen science to understand what's happening to the different species made me appreciate how important it is to protect and create habitat in urban areas so future generations can enjoy them too. Andy Atlas, Austin, Texas. Hello, my name is Colleen Moore, and I'm from Encinitas, California. It's always been important to us that our six-year-old have appreciation for nature and the outdoors. Yesterday, I brought her to our local lagoon, where we saw egrets and herons and pelicans. It was a perfect mama-daughter afternoon. My favorite thing was doing the bird calls. 
What was your favorite thing about the backyard park? Spending time with you. So even though this year's 2023 Great Backyard Bird Count is over, you can still count birds just for fun or, you know, to spend time with someone you love. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms, more at VIX.com. And from Subaru, introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric, zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com Solterra. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 39 degrees in Boston at 559. Join us at City Space Friday, March 17th for an event featuring Kelly McEvers and Chris Benderup, the host and producer of NPR's documentary-style podcast, Embedded. For tickets, go to wbur.org events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at wbur.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In Warsaw, President Biden delivered a speech ahead of the first anniversary of Russia's war on Ukraine. When Russia invaded, it wasn't just Ukraine being tested. The whole world faced a test for the ages. It's Tuesday, February 21st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Red flag laws are designed to allow the temporary confiscation of firearms from people deemed to be an extreme risk to themselves or others. A review of the law in Colorado shows its application is difficult. Also, you'll hear from Jake Biddle, the author of The Great Displacement. The book explores how climate change has forced some people in the U.S. to relocate against their will. At 6.30, it's Marketplace. It's 6.01. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Russian President Vladimir Putin says his country is suspending its participation in the New START treaty with the United States. NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports it's the latest blow to arms control between the two superpowers. The New START treaty sets limits on the number of nuclear weapons the U.S. and Russia are allowed to deploy. It's set to run through February of 2026, but both the pandemic and the war in Ukraine have created problems for the treaty. 
Treaty, required inspections of nuclear weapons came to a halt when COVID-19 started to spread and never resumed. Russia canceled a meeting with the U.S. to discuss reviving the inspection process late last year, and last month the U.S. found Russia in violation of the treaty. The suspension of New START comes just a few years after the U.S. and Russia ended two other treaties designed to limit the danger of nuclear weapons. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News, Washington. Meanwhile, President Biden speaking in Warsaw, Poland today, says Russia has committed crimes against humanity. This day is before the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Tomorrow, Biden meets with members of NATO's eastern flank and the NATO Secretary General before returning to Washington. Today and tomorrow, the U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments in two cases that could dramatically transform the fundamental structure of the Internet and social media companies. NPR's Nina Totenberg has more. At issue is a 1996 law that treats Internet platforms as conveyors of information, not speakers or publishers. The lower courts for decades have uniformly ruled that the statute as written grants Internet providers immunity from civil lawsuits for everything from defamation to harassment. But the Supreme Court has not ruled on the question. Justice Clarence Thomas has several times indicated he thinks that the broad grant of immunity is not what Congress intended. But the sponsors of the law have filed briefs disagreeing, and little is known about the views of the other justices. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. Home Depot is warning that its profit may decline this year as people slow down their spending on home improvement. NPR's Alina Seljuk reports. Home Depot says starting pay in every market is now higher than $15 an hour. The news came as the home improvement giant shared its latest financial report, which shows a pretty rough recent quarter. The company blamed the slowdown on a drop in lumber prices and the big shift of shoppers spending less on goods and more on activities and travel. Home Depot officials say people are still renovating and doing projects, but they're budgeting more carefully for big-ticket items like appliances, grills, patio furniture. Overall, people are shopping at Home Depot less frequently, but spending more when they do, largely because of inflation. Alina Seljuk, NPR News. Wall Street lower by the closing bell, the Dow down 697 points. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. People from around the world are sending their well wishes to former President Jimmy Carter and his family. Last week, America's 39th president entered hospice care at his home in Georgia. Carter is widely praised for his work with the nonprofit group Habitat for Humanity. Greater Boston Habitat for Humanity president and CEO Jim Costaris says the Carter's involvement was transformational. He and Rosalind traveled the world for Habitat for Humanity. They worked with thousands of volunteers. You know, they, they worked alongside, we estimate, uh, at least 100,000 volunteers in 14 different countries to build, renovate, and repair over 4,000 homes. He says it is difficult to overstate Jimmy Carter's work to improve the lives of thousands of families. Members of a New Hampshire nonprofit who are traveling to Ukraine this week have made it safely to Poland. The four co-founders of Common Man for Ukraine landed in Warsaw today and were able to attend President Biden's speech. Tomorrow, the group is scheduled to pack relief supplies for 14 Ukrainian orphanages. Those supplies include food, sleeping bags, and clothing. And the supplies are expected to be delivered in Ukraine Friday and Saturday. 
Law enforcement officials have made an arrest in a decade-old sexual assault case. Prosecutors allege that 28-year-old Christopher Aldrich of Lunenburg raped a 22-year-old woman at Knife Point at an Acton commuter rail station in June of 2013. Investigators used DNA and forensic genealogy to identify distant relatives of the alleged attacker. Middlesex County District Attorney Marion Ryan says the case marks an expansion of the types of cases tackled by the DA's cold case unit launched in 2019. Last month's median sale price for single-family homes in Massachusetts held steady compared to January of last year at $520,000. The Massachusetts Association of Realtors says in that same time frame, condo prices rose by more than 10 percent to $497,000. David McCarthy is the association president. He says the housing market has remained strong despite data showing more than 100,000 Massachusetts residents moved out of the state since the pandemic began. We still have significant demand for single family and condominiums in Massachusetts because we have such a great state to live in and because our our production of single family homes and condominiums is not meeting the market needs, which is what is keeping prices where they are. McCarthy says pending sales have increased locally, indicating a potential uptick in market activity. It's 38 degrees in Boston with a chance of rain tonight, mainly before midnight, lows in the low 30s. Sunny start to your Wednesday, then increasing clouds tomorrow and highs in the mid-40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. There were dueling speeches today as Russia's war in Ukraine hits the one-year mark. President Vladimir Putin gave a State of the Union-type address earlier today in Moscow, where he talked about the war. And then in Warsaw, President Biden said the past year should leave no doubt about the resolve of the West to counter Russian aggression. Our support for Ukraine will not waver. NATO will not be divided, and we will not tire. NPR's Asma Khalid was there in Warsaw, and NPR's Charles Maines was in Moscow. And they join us now to compare notes on both leaders' speeches. Hey to both of you. Hi there. Hi there. All right, let's start with you, Asma. Biden spoke today, I understand, from the same place in Warsaw where he gave an address last March near the start of the war. What did he Mm -hmm. have to say today? Well, the president was here in Poland, as you mentioned, uh, to mark the anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, You know, I I will say it was a very different atmosphere from the speech that he delivered in March here in Poland, March of last year. Uh, At that point, you know, there were concerns that Kyiv would fall into Russian hands. There were concerns about keeping NATO united. And so it was a much more somber speech he delivered at the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You know, this year, the vibe felt like a highly produced rock concert. Uh, It was a real celebratory campaign speech. Uh, There were fog machines and spotlights, and Biden walked out on stage to the song Freedom, and there were thousands of people in the crowd waving Ukrainian, Polish, and American flags. Uh, One main message the president was delivering here today was just a reminder of where the world was a year ago, where this conflict stood, and where it is today. Uh, And he mentioned that Ukraine, you know, remains a free country despite the fact that Russian tanks have rolled in. One year ago... 
the world was bracing for the fall of Kyiv. Well, I just come from a visit to Kyiv, and I can report Kyiv stands strong. Kyiv stands proud. It stands tall. And most important, it stands free. Biden was speaking there about the covert trip that he took to Kyiv on Monday. You know, Biden pointed out that Ukraine has remained independent far longer than some had expected, and he insisted that Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. Hmm. Well, Charles, Putin's speech was also supposed to focus heavily on Ukraine. What did he have to say? Well, there was no fog machine. Uh, Putin <laughs> gave a, a longer speech, uh, nearly two hours, uh, wow. that largely recycled arguments blaming the West for the war in Ukraine. Uh, yet Putin really saved the headline for last. Uh, he said Russia was suspending participation in the New START treaty. Uh, that's the sole remaining nuclear arms agreement with the U.S. Mm -hmm. now, now, Putin stressed Russia was not formally leaving the nuclear pact. In fact, his foreign ministry even said later that the suspension decision was reversible. Uh, but clearly, Putin linked the decision to Western military support for Ukraine. Let's listen. США и НАТО прямо говорят о том, что их цель so here Putin says that the U.S. and NATO profess they want to see Russia's strategic defeat in Ukraine, uh, and yet they also want to come inspect uh, Russian military bases under the New START Treaty, and Putin argued that was, quote, stupid. Now, the New START Treaty was already in trouble. Uh, the two sides had been bickering over inspections rules ever since, really, they were suspended during the COVID pandemic. But Russia is making it clear it's willing to use the treaty's survival, uh, it currently expires in 2026, uh, to pressure the U.S to back off in Ukraine. Okay, well, Charles, beyond the nuclear issue, did Putin give any more of a sense about the war in Ukraine and where it's actually headed? Well, Russia carried out attacks on Ukraine during the speech. Six people were killed amid shelling in Kherson, at least according to Ukrainian officials, uh, which may be an answer in and of itself. Uh, and indeed, Putin did not say anything about peace or seeking an off-ramp to end the war. Mm. Uh, but there are other things he did not say. You know, Putin did not declare a formal war. Uh, he did not announce a new mobilization draft or say he was sealing the borders. In other words, he didn't say a lot of things that a lot of Russians were very nervous about in the run-up to the address. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, much of uh, Putin's speech focused on domestic issues, a lot on helping military families, but also tax cuts, uh, education, investing in Russia's future. You know, almost as if Putin was trying to appeal to Russians uh, with promises of how normal life could be uh, despite these abnormal times. Huh. Well, I'm curious, Asma, did President Biden respond at all to Putin's speech? I would say really in only a, a sort of small way. You know, the White House insisted that Biden's speech was not set up to be this head-to-head -head contrast with Putin. But there was a point when Biden indicated a response to the Russian president in his remarks today. There was this moment when he spoke directly to Russians, saying that the West was not seeking to control Russia or to attack Russia, uh, which Putin had suggested in his speech. And what did Biden say about the path ahead? You know, I will say he did not really articulate a clear prescriptive message for the future in terms of this conflict uh, between Russia and Ukraine. He suggested allies and Americans need to be clear-eyed about what lies ahead, and he acknowledged that the defense of freedom is not the work of a day or a year. Uh, in his words, it's always difficult. He warned that there could be hard and bitter days ahead, and he insisted that allies will continue to support Ukraine. 
Um, you know, I will say Ukrainians have been asking for F-16s. Uh, the White House has not agreed to send fighter jets, and Biden today did not offer any specifics on what kind of additional support the U.S. might be prepared to give. He did say that additional sanctions uh, are in the works, but again, he didn't provide specifics on that. You know, this speech, I, I will say, was not really about articulating the next steps for Ukraine. It was really about energizing allies and energizing Americans to continue supporting Ukraine no matter how long this war takes. And Charles, was, was there any reaction to Biden's speech in Moscow? Well, Biden's speech, uh, maybe not surprisingly, uh, was not shown on Russian television. So it's not, it's not clear how many Russians actually will hear what he had to say. Uh, at the same time, there was extensive coverage of Biden's trip to Kiev. And, and that's because while, yes, you know, it's, it's seen as provocative, uh, it's also seen as proof uh, you know, of what Putin and the propaganda machine here have been arguing all along, uh, that Ukraine is a puppet of the U.S. and really just a means for the United States uh, to pursue its supposedly wider goal, which is re- weakening Russia. That is NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow and Asma Khalid in Warsaw. Thank you to both of you. Thank you. Good to speak with you. Colorado is taking a hard look at its so-called red flag law, which allows police to take guns away from people deemed too dangerous to have them. This after the November Club Q shooting, which killed five people and wounded 17 others. The suspected shooter had been arrested a year earlier for threatening behavior, but the red flag law was not applied. Colorado Public Radio's Andrew Kenny looked at the hundreds of times the law has been used there and why it's not used more often. The nation's first red flag law passed more than 20 years ago in Connecticut after a mass shooting at a government office. Since then, 18 other states and Washington, D.C. have passed similar laws, often in response to their own tragedies. Colorado's came in 2019 after a man with a troubled history killed a sheriff's deputy in Douglas County. Then Sheriff Tony Spurlock testified for the law. People tend to look away. Don't do that anymore, Colorado. Focus on those people. Those people need our help. And we have the opportunity to save lives. The law allows police to take guns from people deemed too dangerous to have them and prevent them from buying more if a judge agrees. But it doesn't always work how advocates hoped. This woman in the Denver area tried to use it when her ex allegedly threatened himself and her, where not identifying her at her request to protect her safety. So I went to Lakewood Police, and then they told me that they could do a wellness check. An officer didn't think there was enough evidence to press for a red flag order, even though the woman had a video of the man pointing a rifle at himself. And I said, well, if you do a wellness check, he's going to know that I called the police. And then she was like, well, at this point, we've done all that we can do. Best of luck. But Lakewood police told her she could still go to a judge herself and ask for red flag protection. As a conservative, she had doubts about using the law, but she saw no other choice. And at that point, I was like, I'll just go to the courthouse. But there's a big difference. Citizen requests for red flag protection only succeed about 20 percent of the time, compared to more than 80 percent for police requests. The woman says it was a struggle to even file the paperwork in the right place. I did get emotional in that, and I said, um, you know, are you going to be at the funeral, like, apologizing to my kids? Because at this point, I've been dealing with it for a week, and I'm trying to figure it out. She did figure it out and eventually got a one-year red flag order, but she wishes she'd had more help. So it was just very, very lonely. Lakewood police said while they didn't pursue this case, they have embraced the law. We found they filed at least nine red flag petitions, more than almost any other agency in Colorado, Commander John Alish. 
and the community decided after some tragedies that this was a necessary tool. So that's one reason we take it very seriously. In contrast, most Colorado police departments have never used the law. Police agencies in El Paso County have filed just two requests, compared to about 90 from Denver, which has a similar population. After the Club Q shooting, El Paso County authorities said they'd had specific reasons not to use the law earlier, despite the suspect's previous threats. But they've also objected to the law itself on Second Amendment grounds. I really want to solve the problem of mental health, but I don't want to do it with an unconstitutional law. That's former El Paso County Sheriff Bill Elder back in 2019, when dozens of conservative counties declared themselves as Second Amendment sanctuaries, protesting limiting gun rights for people who may not have been charged with a crime. And frankly, there are a huge number of police chiefs, mayors, city councils that are in the same exact boat. A woman in one rural county was told the sheriff there avoids using the law because... Because it's taking away the freedom, their freedom to their Second Amendment. She, too, asked for anonymity because she fears the man in the case who was allowed to keep his guns. And it's just, you know, prioritizing one over the other. Like, the freedom to feeling safe or knowing your community safe or the freedom to your gun. Colorado lawmakers are debating potential changes to the law, like allowing district attorneys to start the red flag process, too. That would give people one more place to ask for help. For NPR News, I'm Andrew Kenny. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 619 and at 630, it's Marketplace. WBUR supporters include Stanhope Framers, Back Bay, and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. In business news, about 60 baristas and other employees at three Somerville cafes have ratified their union contract. The Boston Globe says the deal affects workers at Diesel Cafe, Block Cafe, and Forge Baking Company. On Wall Street today, the Dow closed down 697 points, just over 2 percent, finishing at 33,129. The Nasdaq is down 294 points. That's 2.5 percent, closing at 11,492. The S&P 500 is down 81 points, 2 percent, closing at 3,997. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. It's 39 degrees in Boston with a chance of some rain this evening. Tomorrow, sunshine to start, then increasing clouds and highs in the mid-40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. We tell stories all the time about climate fuel disasters that uproot people's lives. Fires in California, hurricanes in Louisiana. 
Well, Jake Biddle's new book is about what happens in the years after those events. It's called The Great Displacement, Climate Change and the Next American Migration. It goes from drought-hit farms in Arizona to flooded coastlines in Virginia. Jake Biddle, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me. So displacement is an interesting word choice in the title, and you open the book by explaining why you picked that word, even though climate migration is becoming a more common term. Why do you consider this a displacement? Right. So migration, the word to me, tends to imply an intentional movement from point A to point B. You know, somebody no longer wants to live where they do. So they get up and they choose to move somewhere else that's better. And what I found was that in the United States and in other places, what's happening as climate disasters get worse is something much more chaotic. People tend to want to stay where they are for as long as they possibly can. In many cases, they find it devastating to leave behind the place that they are from. But more than that, uh, they also don't really move very far. They don't really know where they're going. And they often don't necessarily stay to the place that they move uh, for a long period of time. So I think that because climate change exerts so much economic pressure and because the movements that follow these disasters are so chaotic, you can't really use the word migration as we tend to think of it. And so I was trying to find a word that sort of captured that chaos or that sort of frothy nature of, of the movement after these disasters. And I felt that displacement was a more accurate term I think a lot of people imagine this to be something that happens elsewhere. You know, climate change is displacing people in Bangladesh or in the islands of the South Pacific. Did you have a hard time finding examples of people experiencing climate displacement in the U.S.? No, I didn't have a hard time at all. And indeed, the reason why I wanted to do the book was because I felt that there were a lot of people out there who had moved in the aftermath of disasters, but whose stories we just didn't tend to tell. All it took was to sort of go to the places where there had been disasters a few years earlier and start talking to people. And it was very easy to find dozens and hundreds of people who had ended up slowly migrating away or just not being able to make it back after a storm or a big fire. As I said, the book sort of hopscotches all over the country. What was your starting point? Where did you begin? I started in Houston. I had worked on a story about a federal government flood buyout program in the city of Houston, where basically the government would buy out homes that had seen repeated flooding, knock them down and give people money to move somewhere else. And there was a sort of range of outcomes here that I thought was really fascinating. Some people thought this program was exceptionally effective, that it helped people get out of places that were you know, prone to flooding again and again. Some people thought it was really not great. You know, The government would give people a stipend to move and they would basically not check on what happened to them. And a lot of them ended up moving into places that were just as vulnerable as the neighborhoods that they left behind. So this is a nationwide program. I wrote about it in Houston, but it sort of opened up this world to me of all these people who had, you know, tens of thousands of people every year who had moved after disasters. And we really just didn't know what happened to them. Even though the patterns of displacement are chaotic and unpredictable, there are certain consistent themes. Like you say climate displacement exacerbates income inequality. And one place that's really apparent is Northern California. You write about the Tubbs fire, which roared through Santa Rosa. What happened after that? So California was already experiencing a housing crisis, as everyone knows. But the city lost you know, upwards of 4,000 housing units to the fire. And that took this already pretty severe housing crisis and just supercharged it to the point where wealthy people who had lost their homes were able to bid higher and higher and higher for rental apartments that were available. And in many cases, they actually took away rental apartments from people whose leases were expiring. So some people ended up doubling up with their parents. Some people moved as far away as Kentucky and only came back years later. 
but it was just kind of chaos. And the farther down you were on the income ladder, the, the less able you were to find housing in this sort of really severe post-disaster crunch. And a question that comes up a lot is who's left holding the bag? Like, is it up to the federal government? Is it up to the homeowners? You describe in Norfolk, Virginia, where rising seas are flooding neighborhoods, that it's like people are passing around a stick of dynamite, hoping not to be the person holding it when it explodes. So when the reality of these situations, whether it's flooding or drought or what have you, when that finally becomes undeniable, like who do we put the onus on? How is our country answering that question? Right. So right now we sort of have a, a partial and incomplete answer to that question, which is that the amount of money that gets doled out each year is nowhere near equivalent to the amount of damage, right? So the difference is usually made up by the homeowners and by the renters. The government and insurance companies don't distribute enough money to make up that difference. So homeowners end up bearing the cost of these excessively damaging disasters, whether that's through having to leave and exert themselves to find more affordable housing or having to dig into their savings to protect the, you know, the life of their mortgage and make sure their house is actually worth something. These are inevitably challenging, difficult situations with answers that are not easy, but were there scenarios that you thought that was handled really well? People wound up in a good place after that policy was implemented. Yes, there are a few of those. <laughs> There's not a ton. So during the Obama administration, the federal government handed down a bunch of money, uh, about a billion dollars, to sort of do a, a pilot program for different what they called resilience strategies, different ways of adapting to climate change. And in, a, in an African-American neighborhood of Norfolk called Chesterfield Heights, which had seen, you know, really, really frequent uh, flooding from, from high tide events, from storms. The city was able to spend upwards of $100 million to create this park that would absorb tides, to create these really beautiful berms along the water that would sort of stop storm surge from happening, and also to fix this really outdated stormwater system that really wasn't handling uh, rain events very well. And it went from a neighborhood where property values were going to decline and nobody really wanted to move there because it was just it was so vulnerable to flooding. And it went to a neighborhood that now has some of the best infrastructure in the city and certainly is going to be resilient in the coming decades uh, to the rising sea levels that are happening off the coast of Virginia. We're at the beginning of a trend that will only accelerate. So what does the future look like? I mean, how many Americans are likely to be forced to relocate because of climate change? Where are they likely to go? Can you paint a picture of what the U.S. might look like decades from now? Yeah, it's it's really, really difficult to know with any certainty what the U.S. will look like decades from now. But I think what we can say with certainty is that people will continue to lose their homes, you know, hundreds of thousands, probably on average each year. That's already, you know, a pretty good ballpark estimate of the number of people whose homes get damaged or destroyed by a climate disaster each year. So you could imagine a, a situation where from the coast or from the hottest parts of the country, the parts that are most prone to wildfire, people start to move towards cities that tend to be a little more temperate while not being so far away that they're unfamiliar, right? So some demographers predict that people might move from Miami, say, to Orlando or Atlanta, or people might move from Houston to Dallas, but it will be very messy. You know, it won't be a coherent march northward. It will be a lot of churning and uh, back and forth, and then eventually these trends might, might emerge over the decades. Jake Biddle is the author of The Great Displacement, Climate Change, and the Next American Migration. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. Next at 6.30, it's Marketplace, including a conversation about why online shopping has not led to more informed consumers. Join us at City Space on Sunday, March 12th for an afternoon of classical and folk music featuring the Boston-based Rasa String Quartet. For tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. It's 39 degrees in Boston with a chance of some rain this evening and then tomorrow, sunny skies to start after that increasing clouds and highs in the mid-40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Pioneer Charter School of Science, providing students with a rigorous college prep academic curriculum with two campuses serving Greater Boston and the North Shore. Apply online at pioneercss.org.